We're just going to save that for another time. Looks like cleanup on aisle four. Hot diggity! By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today I've got another leftover episode for you. I mean, we just got through with Thanksgiving, and I remember Thanksgiving when I was a kid. We had leftovers, it seemed like, for weeks. Leftover turkey sandwiches, turkey carcass soup, turkey croquettes. Don't ask me about croquettes right now, we'll save that for another episode. But yeah, Mom found lots of ways to do turkey. Between turkey, mashed potatoes, and stuffing, we had a lot of leftovers. But the good thing is, I loved the leftovers. I thought they were great. Cold turkey sandwiches, oh, so good. And even the turkey croquettes, which sound kind of weird, they were good. So today's episode is some leftovers. I've talked in the past, and I've done episodes in the past with some deleted scenes, some leftover edits from previous episodes. What happens is I do these episodes, and sometimes they go longer than I want them to. Sometimes I get off track. I know, that's hard to believe, right? What, Gamer Dude got off track? So sometimes I edit those tangents out of an episode. But when I edit something out of an episode, I save it. I figure I'll use it someday, and today's the day. So we've got some deleted scenes, some leftovers, some things from the cutting room floor. I've put them together for you. Some are a little long, some are a little short. All of them, I think, are worth saving. So I saved them and put them together in this episode. Now, there's no theme. I talk about everything from grilling to flower sack clothes to working in radio and many other topics as well. So it's kind of a mishmash, but that's the beauty of leftovers. So here you go. I hope you enjoy these deleted scenes. One of the other interesting things to me has always been gadgets. Whether it's a pocket calculator when I was a kid, all the way up to iPads and cell phones. I love all those gadgets. I love gadgets. Now, one of the first electronic gadgets that was the thing to have when I was growing up was the VCR. That doesn't sound like a gadget. It's a big appliance, basically. But for us, this was new. This was new technology. The ability to bring recorded movies into your house was huge. I've talked about this before, but before the VCR, you had to wait for a rerun to come up on TV, or you had to wait for the TV networks to buy the rights to a movie before you could ever see a movie in the comfort of your own home. When the VCR came around, boy, oh boy, I wanted one of those. And you wouldn't think that it would be a complicated thing. Oh yeah, okay, so it's an appliance that you put a tape in and it plays a movie. (laughs) Oh no, it wasn't that easy. You had to set the clock. You had to set the speed. If you wanted to record TV shows, you had to make sure your channels were lined up correctly. The clock was right. Because if the clock on your VCR didn't match the actual time, and you set it to record a show at 9 o'clock, it better be 9 o'clock. Because otherwise, your VCR would record something entirely different. So setting the timer on a VCR was hugely important. As I've said before, I was always the manual reader, the rules reader. I read everything. So anytime anything had to be set or adjusted, it was up to me to figure out the rules or the manual. That was the case with our VCR. Now, we didn't have a VCR for years. My dad didn't want to spend the money. I wasn't really living at home anymore. But I thought, knowing my dad the way that I did, that a VCR would be a great addition for him and for my mom because they loved movies. I knew they loved to record movies. And I knew they loved to rent movies because the advent of the VCR introduced us to places like Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, all of the video rental places you've ever heard of. They all rented movies. And I knew my dad would take full advantage of this if he would only pry into his wallet and get a VCR. He didn't, at least not right away. The first VCR that my parents had, it was an anniversary present that my brother and sister and I combined our funds for and bought them a VCR. 
We got him a VCR and a membership at the local video rental place. And of course, my dad can't turn down an anniversary gift. If we'd just done it out of the blue, he would have said, ah, I don't need your help. I can buy a VCR if I want one. But I knew he was never going to do it. So we got them a VCR for their anniversary. After that, when the VCR needed to be replaced, my dad would go ahead and replace it. Once we dragged him into the world of pre-recorded movies and recording your own movies, he was hooked and I knew he would be. But yeah, learning the ins and outs of a VCR was a huge thing back in the day. As I said, you had to set the timer correctly. You had to get the channels lined up. If you were recording your own stuff, you had to set the speed. There was actually three speeds on a VCR. The slower the speed, the more you could put on a tape, but the lower the quality of the video. Try explaining that to your parents. It's kind of like the difference in the resolutions you get when watching videos. Is it 1080p? Is it 720p? Is it 480 Back in the day, it was SP, LP, or ELP. Standard play, long play, or extra long play. And the other thing we had to worry about was a video rewinder. What the hell is a video rewinder? It was a special device designed specifically for the purpose of rewinding videotapes. Why? Well, people didn't want to wear out their VCRs rewinding tapes. Because they do wear out. I mean, it's all mechanical parts. And all of the rental places wanted you to rewind your tapes before you returned them, which makes sense. It's kind of a courteous thing to do. And people being what they are, a lot of people didn't rewind. That's why they had the stickers on all of the videotapes. Be kind, rewind. So some companies would produce these video rewinders where all you had to do was put a videotape in, press the button, and it would automatically rewind the tape. You couldn't watch on it. You couldn't hook it up to anything else. The sole purpose for this device was to rewind videotapes. We have a special appliance to do what the VCR could do, but we wanted to have a rewinder anyway. And I remember getting my parents a rewinder so that my dad wouldn't have to haunt the auctions or the garage sales for replacement VCRs all of the time. Now, I haven't thought of a video rewinder in literally ages. And honestly, I don't know why it popped into my head this week, but that's kind of what inspired this whole episode. These little things that pop into your head and you remember, oh yeah, I remember rewinders. And that's why I said at the outset, Keeping a journal is not a bad idea if you want to remember all of the little details of your life. I mean, sure, you can do a podcast. Sure, you can record things. You could do a YouTube channel. What I'm saying, though, is writing this stuff down, preserving it somewhere, keeping it as a video, as a diary, as a journal. It's really nice to have these memories to go back to. It reminds you of a simpler time in your life. It reminds you sometimes of a happier time in your life. But I'm a firm advocate in never forgetting where we came from. The good, the bad, the ugly. That's what made us who we are today. And I think it's important that we remember that stuff. One of the things that I've learned cooking for multiple people over the years is that there's two ways to keep things warm. The recipe I gave you is for two pieces of French toast. If you're making four or six or eight, you probably want to serve everybody at the same time. You don't have to. You can have everybody eat as it comes up. Then you don't have to worry about keeping things warm. But if you're trying to serve everybody at the same time and you only have a frying pan that fits two slices of bread, turn your oven on, put it on the lowest setting, warm. Put an oven-proof plate in there. Take the first two pieces out, put them on the oven-proof plate in the oven, and they'll stay warm while you cook the next two pieces. That's one way to do it. The other thing you can do is you can buy a griddle. Two types of griddles. One you put on the stove or one that you plug in. Electric griddles are good. You just have to remember that one end of it is usually hotter than the other. The end where the plug is is usually hotter. So you're going to start cooking on the cooler side because it's going to have to cook longer there. And then you move the pieces around. But with an electric griddle, you could put eight or ten slices on there. 
A stovetop griddle, more expensive, but better heating. Because a stovetop griddle, you put over two burners on your stove, and you turn both burners up to the same heat, of course. And then you can cook multiple pieces on your stovetop griddle. But you don't need any of that fancy griddle stuff. All you need is a frying pan. As long as you have a frying pan, you can scramble your eggs, you can fry your eggs, you can make your pancakes, you can make your French toast, you can make your bacon. One frying pan does it all. With a frying pan, a spatula, and a fork, you can feed an army. I know because I've done it. Have you ever heard of flour sack clothing? If you haven't, I urge you to go look it up. Clothing made from flour sacks was a thing back at the time of the Great Depression in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And for those who don't know, the Depression was a huge financial crisis where hundreds of thousands of people had to go without because of a crash in the stock market, a banking crisis. It was just bad across the country and people didn't have anything. They didn't have new clothes. They didn't have new furniture. They didn't have new anything. They had to make do. People spent their money on mundane things like food and shelter instead of new clothes and new shoes. But what happened is the manufacturers of flour, which would be delivered to families in giant sacks that were made of cotton, the companies that made the flour discovered that people were using the sacks that the flour was delivered in to make clothing for their kids. And it was easy to take the cotton from the flour sack and cut it into patterns and make clothes, shirts, pants, dresses for the kids. And so what the company started doing was packaging the flour in colorful cotton sacks, some with floral prints, some with bright colors, because the companies realized that people needed this cloth in order to make clothing for their kids. And so if you take a look at some of the pictures from that era, you will see some very brightly colored homemade clothes, all as a result of the companies making flour deciding to repackage their product in a way that would be helpful to the people who used it. Now, you might not see too many flower sack dresses these days, at least original ones, but that's where they came from. And I always thought that was a cool little fact. Now, one of the tales from raising my own kids is when my oldest was getting in trouble for not doing homework. And we tried to let him do it at his own pace, do it when he got around to it, do it when he said he was going to do it, but it just wasn't getting done. And we got the calls and we got the notices and it just wasn't getting done. So what we instituted was the two-hour window. Right after dinner, you have two hours and you're going to sit at the kitchen table and you're going to do your homework. And if you don't, that's fine, but you're going to sit there for two hours. And as part of this plan, he had to have a homework sheet signed by each of the teachers. And he knew that we would follow up with the teachers to make sure that they were actually signing the sheet. And then he'd bring it home and put it on the table. And after dinner, he'd sit there. And as soon as we saw that all the homework was done, he would be free to go do whatever we wanted to do. And there were times, especially when it first started, where he would sit there and say, I don't have any homework or it's already done or I'm not going to do it. And my position was, okay, that's fine. You're still sitting here. And there would be nights where he would sit there for two hours and not pick up a pencil. And that was fine. But he came to learn that it would end quicker if he actually did the homework and got done in an hour rather than waste two hours sitting there not doing what he wanted to do. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't a raving success. The homework battle continued throughout his education. But at least we set the rules in place and enforced them to the best of our ability. Now, I stayed with radio for a couple of years and really enjoyed most of it. There were parts of it that I didn't like, 
Morning drive hours are horrendous. I talked about the 4.45 wake-up time for limo runs. That's basically a morning drive guy's hours. You get up at 4.45 to make it to the station in time to go on the air at 6 a.m. That's what you did. The other thing about radio work, especially at small stations, the station manager is often either the owner or a friend of the owner. And if the owner doesn't like you or doesn't like your sound or doesn't like your style, your days are numbered. I also learned that radio DJs are kind of like baseball managers. They're hired to be fired. I learned as I was there that the shelf life for DJs in most markets is about two to three years. Then they either get bored or fired and move on to someplace else, either a bigger market or a different sounding station. And it's not like you move from small town New Jersey to medium sized town New Jersey to New York City. I learned you move from small town New Jersey to medium sized town in Indiana to medium sized town in Tennessee to large town in New Mexico. And then maybe you're lucky enough to get a gig in LA or New York, or maybe not. And just like the self-analysis I did at the end of my first year in the graduate program at Bowling Green, back when I was trying to become a residence hall lifer, I realized I didn't want a career where every two years I'd have to pull up my roots and move someplace else. Don't forget, back at that time, radio was not like podcasting. I'm doing this from the comfort of my home. When you were working in radio, you had to go live in the town where you were broadcasting from. So you would move from New Jersey to Indiana to Tennessee to New Mexico every two, three, or four years. It's a vagabond lifestyle. The Howard Stearns, the Scott Shannons, the Don Imuses, they're few and far between. Most DJs back when I was doing it had to plan a life of a nomad. And I decided it wasn't for me. So I didn't stay with it. Now, how did I learn all this stuff? I didn't grow up with barbecue. I didn't grow up with grilling. I didn't know the difference when I was a kid. And if you've listened to other episodes of the podcast, you know my dad didn't like barbecue or charcoal flavor. He didn't like cooking outside. We had a barbecue grill. We just never used it. I would occasionally get him to let me do a fire outside and do the burgers outside because he was willing to give me that indulgence. But he didn't like it. And I never did get the chance to ask him why. Because charcoal grilled food is so good. It's so tasty. I love it. And why my dad didn't like it, I'll never know. But because he let me do this when I was growing up, I learned how to start a fire. I learned the difference with charcoal briquettes. And I learned to appreciate charcoal grilled food. I've used propane since then, but I've discovered I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I shouldn't say I don't like it at all. I'll eat it. It's just, once you've had charcoal grilled food, you can tell the difference. And it's so much better over the charcoal over the hardwood. Oh my goodness. Now, as I said, if you're going to do barbecue at home, you can do it. And you can do it on virtually any grill. You just have to make some adjustments. If you're going to use your basic grill for barbecue, you have to be able to set it up with indirect heat. It has to be big enough so that you can set the charcoal briquettes on one side of the grill and then the meat that you're barbecuing over on the other side of the grill, not directly over the heat, but inside the same grill, obviously. So what you're going to do is you're going to start your fire and you're going to put the briquettes on the right side of the grill. If you have an adjustable grate for the briquettes, you're going to have that on the lowest setting. So it's as far down in the grill as you can go. Then you're going to have the cooking grate over on the left side of the grill and you're going to put your meat on top of that. If you're really into it, you can get one of those aluminum foil drip pans at your local supermarket. I shouldn't say drip pans. I use it as a drip pan. They use it as one of those disposable pans you put brownies in to take to that potluck dinner that you don't care about bringing the dish home. It's just an aluminum tray. Get those square aluminum trays. Use that underneath 
that helps keep the heat indirect, number one. And number two, you can actually fill it with a liquid like a beer or wine or just water. And that helps keep some moisture in there as you're doing the slow barbecue process. So picture this. You have a rectangular grill. On the right side, as low as you can go, you have your charcoal briquettes heating up the fire. On the left side of the grill, on the cooking grate, you have your meat. In between, you have a drip pan filled with beer. Okay, not filled. One can will do. But it's got liquid in it. And that's your basic setup for barbecue at home. Then what do you put on there? Well, you can put on a pork loin. You could put on a pot roast. You could put on beef ribs or pork ribs. You could put on a big turkey breast. Anything you want to slow cook and barbecue, you can cook it in there. Now, low and slow means low and slow. You're not going to get a pork loin done in 45 minutes over indirect heat. You can do it over direct heat. But if you're going to do a pork loin slowly, plan on two hours. Pork loins are small enough. You can get it done in about two hours. If you're doing something bigger, four or five pounds, you're going to want to have four, five, six hours, depending on how big the meat is. That's why you need a meat thermometer. Now, I've learned all this over the years through trial and error, and I'm telling you all about it so that you don't have to make all of the same mistakes I did, but you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. You can't screw up a hamburger. You can't screw up a hot dog. You can't screw up a breasted chicken. If you leave it on there long enough, eight to 10 minutes for a medium burger, five to 10 minutes for a hot dog, depending on how much you like it cooked, about 15 minutes for a boneless chicken breast. You want to flip it there. If you're doing a hamburger, you don't want to do it eight minutes on one side. You want to do four and four or five and five, depending on how well you want it done. With hot dogs, you keep rolling them to make sure that they get done all around. Same with sausage. By the way, sausage takes about 10 minutes. I go 10 to 12. But that also depends on how hot your flame is. It could go 15. But it's trial and error. Don't be afraid to try these things. Don't be afraid. You try a different kind of hardwood. You try a different kind of wood chip. You try a different kind of charcoal briquette. You can experiment a little. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's actually kind of fun. So don't be afraid. Go try it. Go try these things. And I'm going to close the episode by telling you about one of my favorite buffets of all time. It's probably my favorite buffet because of the circumstances that allowed me to go there. But it's still one of my favorite buffets. Back when I was in college, I was at Bowling Green State University in Northwest Ohio. It's about a half hour south of Toledo, about an hour and a half south of Detroit. My dad's business would occasionally have him travel to Detroit for a business trip. And when dad would have to travel to Detroit, he would let me know, of course. And he would always ask, do you want to meet up for dinner? And I would always say, yes, starving college student, dad buying dinner, let's go. And so I tried to find a place that was between Detroit and Bowling Green, the obvious place somewhere in Toledo, because it was almost halfway between the two. And the place that I found was a restaurant in the Southwick Mall. It was a location for a chain of restaurants called the Bombay Bicycle Club. Bombay Bicycle Club is also an indie band out of the UK, but I'm talking about the restaurant. It was a chain in the 80s, the 90s. They didn't have a lot of them, but they had one at the Southwick Mall. So my dad and I decided to meet up at the Bombay Bicycle Club. And we met there, we went into the restaurant, and the thing that I discovered in the Bicycle Club was this. The most amazing salad bar I'd ever seen in my life. When they showed you the salad bar, if you've ever seen a movie where they open up a vault and they play the angelic music and the lights come up, and it's if you're looking onto some sort of mystical, almost holy display of whatever it is you're looking at. That's what the salad bar at the Bicycle Club looked like. It was incredible. It was every kind of lettuce, every kind of tomato, every kind of side, every kind of topping, every kind of dressing. It was rolls and bread. It was fruit 
and vegetables. It was six different kinds of cheese, 10 different kinds of dressing. It was glorious. Now, I remember my dad got the salad bar as a side to his steak because dad was a steak eater. But me, I just said, Dad, I'm getting the salad bar because there was so much there. Diced ham, diced turkey, crumbled bacon, three different kinds of croutons, sliced peaches, sliced strawberries, blueberries. I mean, anything that you can imagine on a salad bar was on this salad bar. It was the nirvana of salad bars. Now, I don't remember how many times we went there. It was more than a couple. Dad traveled to Detroit a few times while I was in school. But I remember every time being an experience, not only because I got to go with my dad, but because I got to eat some of the best food I'd ever eaten, even if it was just off of a salad bar. I never had a regular meal at the Bombay Bicycle Club. I didn't want to. I just wanted to go for that salad bar. If I never have another experience at a salad bar or at a buffet restaurant, the memories of the Bombay Bicycle Club salad bar will always stay with me and will always be the epitome of the salad bar experience. It was that good. So, there was some pretty good stuff on the cutting room floor, huh? When I go through the stories that I've edited, it always surprises me some of the stuff that I chose to leave out of episodes because I usually remember which episode I took it out of. And then I go, why did I take that out? That was pretty good. And that's the way I feel about all of the stories that I featured this week. The reality is I always try to keep the episodes between 20 and 25 minutes. That seems to be the sweet spot for a good podcast, at least in my opinion. I know other podcasts go on for an hour, some go an hour and a half, but they have a different format. Some are interviews, some are analysis of a particular topic, and some of those topics deserve an hour, an hour and a half. But I like this time frame. It works for me. It seems to work for you. And I appreciate you listening to these stories and all of the stories that I tell. And that's why I keep telling them. So I want to thank you for listening to all of them. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Leftovers from the Cutting Room Floor. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these and all of the stories. I can't thank you enough for all the support you give me and all the time you spend listening. And there are not enough words for me to express my appreciation just for the fact that you take the time to do so. Thank you, as always, for your support. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.